Listener Production. Hello and welcome to Keeping Good Company, the podcast helping you build business success through culture and leadership. Today is our last episode. I hope you've learned as much as I have on this journey, or perhaps I should say voyage for this episode. So far, we've covered everything from how to help individuals reach their potential to turning groups into innovative teams and also creating positive workplace cultures. We'll be chatting to Captain Paul Mogger, who most recently served as Director of Navy Leadership and Culture Development within Navy People Branch about leadership in action and developing effective leaders. And we also have David Byram, Managing Director of Human Synergistics, back in the studio with us today too. Let's get started. David, how about you bring us up to date, first of all, with culture. Why is culture important? This is what this whole podcast series is about. Thanks, Jess. And it's great to be back. Um, It's been a few episodes since I've been back, so it's great to be back with you. And we do have our special guest, which we'll get to very shortly. But culture, you know, why culture? And we've heard from some great speakers over the last few episodes that talked about their journey of culture and why it's so important. So as a quick recap, culture allows individuals to be their best. Culture allows teams to perform and it allows organisations to fulfil their promise. So dig a little bit deeper on that. So as individuals, they want to be caring, curious, creative and courageous. Oh, I love all those C words. The There's c- a lot of C all, all words the C's. there. <laughs> and I, I've used the C words as a bit of a pun. We'll get to our guest in a minute. The importance of allowing people to be their best, all right? Everybody wants to make a difference and culture helps people make that difference. Teams. So teams that perform well in a constructive environment will outperform other teams. So teams want to do well. They want to be committed with each other. And a good culture allows not only to build commitment, it actually allows to get better outcomes, better decisions, better actions. And finally, organisationally, we know that organisations that really focus on their culture deliver better outcomes for their employees, customers and shareholders. Employees are safer. safer. Risk is managed more effectively. Organisations are more innovative. They're more diverse. They're more inclusive. So culture is the main game in town. And that's why culture. It is the main game in town. We're going to be talking, though, about leadership in this episode. What is it about leadership that matters to you? You know, we have this uh, phrase we talk about that culture drives leadership and leadership drives culture. And they both drive sustainable performance. So leadership starts from the top, right? And leaders both directly and indirectly influence the culture of an organisation. And getting that right and being a leader that actually wants to make a difference allows organisations, teams and individuals to excel, which is a great segue. I'm very proud that we have our guest with us today who is a great leader uh, and I've known this person for well over 10 years. This person brings a variety of leadership attributes to our podcast series. So without further ado, and you'll get the pun on the seas, it's great pleasure to introduce Captain Paul Mogger from the Royal Australian Navy to share his journey of leadership and why leadership is important to him and more importantly, how leadership links to culture. So Paul, welcome. Hi, David. Hi, Jess. 
Oh, Paul, how fabulous to have you here in the studio with us. We were talking off mic about Top Gun Maverick. Uh-huh. And <laughs> this was a movie that we both really enjoyed. But listeners, Paul is actually a real life maverick, aren't you? Oh, wouldn't go far as a maverick. Oh, come on. Well, well, you were a real Top Gun. Let, let's say that. Well, couldn't yes. even say Top Gun, but I am a Navy pilot. Let's go there. So, I yeah. think we could say then you are a Top Gun pilot. Well, thank you very much. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> but, Paul, you've had a very long and distinguished career in the Navy. You began in 1986. Tell me how your journey changed from that beginning to where you are now. Oh, great question. It's a fundamentally different Navy to start with. And in many respects, we're a fundamentally different country. So I joined the Navy at a time when the Cold War was still happening. And we had this view around the East and the West. And so my initial studies with Navy and learning how to drive ships were often about the Soviet threats and things like that. And it came down to this high-end, high-stakes type warfare that we were talking about. And while the stakes in warfare are always high, what's changed over the years is our approach to how we work with our people and our teams inside the Navy and inside the Defence Force more broadly, and how we actually then go to do those tasks that government and the people of Australia are asking us to do. And that has shifted across the years now where we work extensively now with the the Australian community in disaster relief and humanitarian aid in the region and abroad, right up to that high-end warfighting responsibility which we hold for the government of the day. You do such an extraordinary role within our community and for our community. And very much now within the Navy, you are a director of Navy culture. Now, that seems like quite a um, grown-up term. What does it mean and what is it that you're doing now? Yeah, so that was a title of my most recent position, my job, where I had a team of around 70 people uh, who would support Navy's culture program, which is called Next Generation Navy. And it's always looking ahead. It's around giving the best opportunities for development for Navy people so that they can be the best versions of themselves in delivering their skill set into their teams and into their roles. I'm now moving into the broader enterprise level across defence culture more broadly and setting the, the platforms for that program so that the entire defence enterprise can target that high-functioning, highly respected, highly valued element of people so that we can bring out the best we can do right across the enterprise. So it's a great privilege to be able to do that and bring together my 30 years of time in Navy itself into helping people be the best they can be. How do you do that, though? How do you bring out the best in people, especially when different things will bring out different things depending on what that person is made up of? Yeah. The first thing I would say is that we're not the be-all and end-all for the development. We build on the wonderful training that happens right across defence. So right from the moment people join, they're trained in those elements of leadership, how to lead, how to follow, how to initially be aware of their own skill sets as they grow into their roles with inside whichever service or group that they're working in. But what we add across in Navy is a little bit of a layer on top that helps build the skills, the self-awareness piece, the sense of uh, how I lead, how I communicate, and then what is my impact as a leader on those around us. And we do that through a number of workshops, through coaching, and through supporting and mentoring that goes on right across the organisation. And it's more adding on the icing on what is already a very good cake, if you like. Is there something that you find works for everyone? 
or there's a good jumping off point for people? The big thing is that discussion around self-awareness. Who am I? Where do I actually start in my leadership journey? What is the impact I'm having right now? And having a bit of it reflected back to you through either one-on-one conversations with your teams, peers, your supervisors often will help with that, or more formally through structured programs like leadership development workshops and using tools such as a 360-degree reporting tool like the Lifestyles Inventory that then help you see where you are working well and then where you might have opportunities for development. And then you can target those areas for development and really enhance someone's ability to grow and particularly reflect on themselves. Because ultimately, we're not shaping people. We're not forcing them into a mold. Everyone comes with their own amazing skill set. We just want them to be the best version of that and contributing into the the defence organisation overall. How do you make people receptive, though? Sometimes even the best-intentioned people might think, oh, I don't know about this change. I don't feel comfortable with what is being suggested. How do you deal with that? Yeah, and we've experienced that. So when we first started rolling these programs out more than a decade ago, there was a lot of resistance. You know, why do I have to do this development piece? You know, I've always worked this way. It's always worked for me. So what we ended up doing was demonstrating that, yes, what has got you here has been successful, but it may not get you to the next stage in your career. And we need to actually look ahead. So it's no longer fixing a problem or just simply doing the mechanics of leadership. It's about creating a vision of what might be and what is your potential as an individual and a leader. And let's work towards that. And so over the last decade, more and more people have come to the programs in a voluntary capacity. In fact, when we started the programs in Navy, they were compulsory for our managerial rank levels. Now we don't. We've removed that compulsory element. We still get hundreds of people each year volunteering to be part of our programs because they see value in a little bit of self-reflection, a little bit of time out of the office, thinking about how they are working, how they are leading, and then trying to make a little bit of change. And it's all incremental. It's not dramatic. It's just incremental change over time so that you can be the best version of yourself. What was it that inspired you to do this? Oh, so that goes back to some of my first experiences in Navy. I had some great times. So as a young officer, I came out and I wasn't the best junior officer academically in particular. I had a few missteps earlier in my career. I was studying engineering, but had the social life of an art student. So just, <laughs> Nothing wrong with oh, it was, that. It was great fun, but didn't exactly work out for me in those uh, career advancement stages. But I ended up going to sea as a, a very junior officer on a landing craft with a crew of just 13 people small teams. And I got to learn to lead that small team environment where it wasn't about the rank on your shoulder. It was about the skill that you brought to the game and your commitment to the overall team. And it was a very early lesson in that this is not about the hierarchy. This is about you contributing and how you can bring the best out in those around you by being a contributor and a listener and learning to from all those around you, regardless of their rank or background. I then moved into aviation and learned how to fly, which was a great experience. But again, that was small teams. We'd go to sea with a flight, as we called it, four aircrew, 12 maintainers on the flight that I was on, flying Seekings. We had a small team environment where we had to work together in a very coordinated way. And so you need to understand the roles and skills of everyone around you at different levels. And that got me to sort of think about, well, how does this work from 
and particularly a safety point of view in my earliest days, that safety culture piece. And I ended up doing a degree in aviation human factors to learn more about that approach and safety culture. And from there, I started to think, well, this culture thing's got a lot going for it. And in the years later, after we had a rather serious accident, a tragic accident in 2005, which actually forced the organisation to rethink its approach to how we were working, it all came back to this notion of organisational culture. And so I started to apply some of the lessons from my safety experience and my small team experience and then reflect on how I might be a better leader of an organisation that can rebuild after a tragic accident. And ultimately, five, six years after that accident, I got to lead that same squadron. And I think we did some really great work in that period. And we were able to learn lessons and build on those critical culture inputs. And the central one was leading, learning how to lead and getting your teams at every level to lead with authenticity and creativity and being courageous in their decision-making all the way through the more difficult aspects of our work at that time. David, there's one of those C words, courageous. Exactly right. Paul has typified it very well in what he's just said then. Does the rake on the shoulder make a difference? Hell yes. But what we know is it actually doesn't allow people to be their best. What allows people to be the best is you, not what's on your shoulder. So all of a sudden, the question becomes, who are you? And Paul rightly talked about self-awareness. So understanding who you are as an individual. So what are you bringing to the table? What drives you? We often say to people, when you get out of the bed in the morning, what motivates you to be you? If you want to be curious, courageous, caring, supportive, and make that difference, you're going to be more open to others. So now you're in this leadership position, and all of a sudden you're leading a team of 10, 20, 100, 500. I think Navy's now nudging 15,000, and Defence Force more broadly is probably nudging closer to 100,000 or more. The question now becomes is, as a leader, and as any leader in these things, how open are you? Do people see that you're open? Do people see that you're curious? Do people see that they can come to you and talk openly? So, Paul, let's talk about then communication, the importance of communicating. What is your communication style and how do you do it? Oh, great question. And it's actually one I haven't really thought too much about because you just kind of do it, you're growing into it. But Reflecting on it, I would now say that my communication style, which has changed across the years, has been modelled on some of the really outstanding leaders that I've been very privileged to serve with over the years. They are leaders who firstly and foremostly listen. They seek opinion in the room and they seek guidance. They actually then explain elements of decision-making. Now, not necessarily all. It doesn't mean we give the complete why to every decision, but they give a reason enough that we can go, yep, Got it. Particularly if the decision that that leader has made actually is a bit controversial or might be a bit divergent from the advice provided. And I've, I've always tried to do that. So particularly in my command and leadership roles over the last decade, where we've had to do or make difficult decisions, I haven't just thrown them out there and let them land and see what happens. I've gathered the team in and said, here's our pressures. Here are the facts. Here's the decision that we have to make at this time. Here's why it matters that we do it this way. I know it's difficult. Let's get on board and make it happen. And it's about communicating the value of that task or decision to the team as opposed to just a transactional 
get on with it, make it done. That never lands. It never works. It just creates a workforce that will deliver the bare minimum. And resentment too, perhaps. Potentially. In the worst case, yes. We're a, a defence force that's competing in a broad labour market in Australia that's actually quite tight. So people will walk. And there's an old maxim that people don't leave their jobs, they leave their bosses. And that's true for defences in anywhere else. And if they're treated poorly, if they're not considered well, if they they don't consider that they're valued or they have a strong sense of purpose, then they'll go looking for where they can feel that. And it's important for leaders in our, particularly in our organisation, that we prepare our teams early in our training and through our development and our workups for the most difficult case we can. And that's when decisions need to be made quickly and often with major consequences on the line. So we need to be ready to go. But they're not decisions that will be prepared in an instant. They're based on months, if not years, of preparation and development of those teams for them to be the best they can be at those critical times. And it comes back to how elements are communicated all the way through that training process. Communication is the methodology, but what we're actually seeking here is this notion of professional trust and what we were now calling in Navy this mastery, the notion of mastery of ourselves, mastery of our technical skill and mastery of our domain overall, professional mastery. Just listening to you, Paul, I can see why you are a good leader because you talk about the need to change over time. We do need to change the need to listen and also that need to make those tough decisions. And I think that takes a certain kind of makeup of an individual to be able to deliver all of those things. Yes, indeed. In fact, in the lead up to my time in command at 817 Squadron, I was in Canberra on Staff College uh, at the Australian Command and Staff Course. And we did a 360-degree reporting program there and it was had written comments as part of it. And I asked a bunch of people that I'd worked with over the previous years in aviation to provide me this feedback. And one of the comments was in there was quite pointed. He's a really nice guy, but I don't think he's got the medal to make the tough decisions in command. And it struck me like a bullet in the chest. It's like, wow. And at first I thought, that is really insulting for a start. And then I sat back and went, actually, I need to thank that person because that's really honest and great feedback for me that perhaps I'm either coming across as being too engaging and not willing to make hard decisions when in fact I knew in my mind that I was able to. They probably hadn't seen it. But it did steal me to then prepare for what would be potentially some very difficult decisions. And I did have some where I had to tell people things they didn't want to hear and issue directions because I was the accountable person that had to make that happen. And so the preparation that I got from that feedback allowed me to then consider how I might go about it, not just be to the bull at the gate and not just issue directory after direction, but to actually take the team on a journey uh, for this about why things would happen or if it was a much shorter time frame to issue the direction, make it happen, but follow up afterwards and then keep the communication going, keep the professional trust engaged and build a sense of psychological safety in amongst our team that, yes, things are difficult, but it's for a purpose and you're valued and keep going, which as a team ends up making us resilient, makes us more enduring and persistent as a fighting force. 
Oh, definitely. That sense of of team, David, there, you mentioned that at the outset as well, that it takes a team of people to make a difference, doesn't it? It does. It absolutely takes a team. And this is where, as a leader, your challenge is bringing the team along. And Paul's hit a couple of really good points around communication. First one I want to highlight is that communication is two-way. All right, a lot of people think communication, I'm just going to send my message down the line. But it's also about how you receive the messages. So often all we talk about communication coming down, communication coming back. So communication coming down needs to be clear. All right, it needs to be timely. It needs to be consistent. And these are all important, but there's nothing more important than making sure it's straight from you as the leader. Because if you hear it through back channels, second hand, third hand, have you heard? There's nothing worse because what does it say about your reputation as the leader? Do you really take the time to understand what you're being told? Do you really actually engage and explore and dig a little bit deeper? And then all of a sudden, you've got this message, but do you do something about it? Do you act on it? Because people will take their cue from whether or not you actually take some action from what I'm telling you. So communication two-way. The other thing I want to highlight, and Paul talked about it's happening over time. Communication is not a discrete event. It's not a one-off. You don't just stop and start and go, okay, <laughs> I'm done now. I've communicated. <laughs> no more I've, communication. I've done it. Like, that was my half Wasn't hour. Wasn't that clear? <laughs> my half hour briefing, we're done. Um, you build up these credits over time. Uh, and you think in the world of defence, there are times where pressure's high. And at that pressure situation, you want people on point and everyone has a job to do. But you've trained them, you've educated, you've communicated well over months and months, if not years. So you've actually built up this expectation now that when I hear the message, I do my role. So it's not a discrete one-off. You've actually built credits in the bank. And as we rightly talked about, you've built up this trust. The team now communicates with each other sharing their insights, sharing their views, listening to each other, trusting each other. And all of a sudden now we're moving forward as one. And the leader, dare I say, is part of the team. What I'd like to unpack a bit further is, Paul, you mentioned that feedback that you got and initially you kind of bristled a bit and thought, wait a minute, how can we recognise constructive feedback but then also look at some things that actually are not relevant? Yeah, it's a really good question um, because it will happen. You'll get feedback where you think that's uh, you know, really not on point or a bit out of order, but it comes down to who you seek for feedback. So in that case, I'd chosen the six people based on the fact that I trusted them. I knew them. There was people who were senior to me. Mostly they were peers and I could tell who it was from their writing style <laughs> and their word choice, so it wasn't exactly Did you anonymous. ask? Did you talk to them about it after? I chose not to. Yeah, I chose to let it. I simply thanked them all and said, thanks for your feedback. I really appreciate it. You've helped me prepare for this next job. Great. I didn't go into the detail because I didn't want to get into a spit-up cycle around a particular point and then make them feel defensive. It's not the point of it. The point was for me to consider this attribute and how it might actually impact my leadership. So to actually look at those kind of feedbacks, you've just got to think about why am I doing it? Why did I ask for this feedback? I asked it to help me. And they've helped me. They've given me something that they mean in a constructive way because, you know, I knew that these people 
They all want me to succeed. They don't want me to fail in this next job. So I take it on in that light, in that way, so that they can actually, I can use that help to shape my own approach to the job itself. And that's what I'd like to think I did. And as you said, you were able then to do that, to deliver those sort of tough decisions. As a leader, though, how do you manage that where you have to say difficult things to people, but then you've got to go home at night and still think, oh, that's had an impact on someone in their life? Yeah, it's um, it, it's it's part of the you know the the great privilege and 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 uh, burden of being a leader in those positions. And you know, we talk about the privilege and burden of command in the military. It is exactly that. It's a great honour to lead people, but it's also you're an accountability thing. You are accountable for the output of the team, the capability delivery inside your service. You are also accountable for the the welfare training and outcomes of the people, the humans in your team. And sometimes you need to make calls that will go against their wishes because that's what the organisation might want. And you've just got to learn to do it in a way that is direct. Timely is really important. Bad news does not get better with age. No. I'm a shocker though. I mean, not that I have to really deliver bad news per se, but I procrastinate. Yeah. It's a natural intensity because you don't want to deliver bad news. And I've been guilty of of holding back, oh, well, let's wait a few days and maybe it'll get better. It never does. So the better thing now is as soon as there's bad news coming, get the team together, get the relevant people in the room and go, right, here's the news, here's why it matters. I understand what this is going to do. This is the way it is, but I'm here to support you and we'll get through this. When it's done in a way that is respectful to the teams, when it is coined in terms of the capability delivery and it is respectful of their position, if you're respectful of that, then they'll get it because they've also served. In our case in the Navy, people sign up to serve. It's not a job. So they know they're going to be called on. And if there's a balance between that welfare and respect for their family and their time versus those short notice call-outs, which are often easier if there's a real national purpose, then it can balance itself out. But it's up to the leader to make sure that that balance happens. And my example is in in 2011 when I was on leave with my family here in Sydney and got a phone call and was told that by tomorrow night you were to be established with two aircraft in Roma for flood relief. This is on the 4th of January. So people are scattered across the country and I had to recall people after a busy year of work back into town, into to Nara, to prepare our aircraft and get ourselves north to Queensland to support Australians in need. As soon as we made the phone calls, I said, it's on, we've got to do this, this and this. And, you, and why this matters? You've seen the news, the floods are happening, we're going to be in position to help. And we didn't get a single no. Everyone was on board. They wanted to be a part of that because there was a clear purpose and they knew that their contribution was of value to that overall purpose. And what a contribution. I'd just like to thank you and your teams for for doing that because it was an extraordinary effort and made such a difference to our country. We were a small group of many people involved there, but it was um, the worst weather I've ever flown in, doing the evacuations from Laidley and Forest Hill on the 11th of January, the day after the major flood, and then flying into Grantham the day after that uh, horrendous flood that really destroyed that town where we bumped into firefighters who were the first on the ground there who had gone in in their big trucks and they had 1,000-mile stairs because of what they had seen in that place. It was just an awful period of time, but to be able to provide a little bit of help for the Australian community is is an incredible privilege to be able to do and it was 
something that we were all very proud of at the end of that deployment. Thank you so much for, for doing that. What I'd like to do now, Paul, is ask, I suppose, a more, more wider sort of questions about, I know diversity is very important to you. Yes. And also looking at the role of women within the Defence Forces. Yeah. It, diversity is all important. We must reflect in the services, the community with for whom we serve. If we're not doing that, then we become divergent from the values associated with the Australian community. And the values thing is a really important part of what we do in defence. The, the thing that goes alongside the diversity piece is the necessary element of inclusion. It's one thing to have a diverse element of your workforce population. If you're not including them appropriately and giving them equal opportunity to go and thrive and succeed, then the diversity piece just won't matter. You must have both in there. And so part of our, our previous role in Navy culture was to oversee those elements of the Navy Diversity and Inclusion Program and support the Navy Women's Strategic Advisor in their roles to really ensure that we continue that effort to understand the power of diversity. Harnessing the power of diversity was a phrase we used in support of the defence mission because it does matter. It does give us opportunities to um, think more broadly. The diversity of thought is a huge power and force multiplier in that respect. So it is an incredible part of our cultural journey and enabling our force to be the best it can be in our critical mission. That point you make about, yes, we it, it's good to be diverse, but then we need to have inclusion and have those appropriate roles. So we're actually not just paying lip service to saying we're diverse. What sorts of things have you done to make sure that that is the case? We, we focus on perhaps the, what we call the underrepresented communities. So those elements of the diversity that uh, in the Defence Force are not matched to the percentage, for example, in the population itself. Uh, and we aim to do that simply because we know we are a better force when we are more diverse. So there's elements of promoting education, creating simple opportunities for leadership development, creating mentoring programs around different demographics, enabling them to thrive and succeed inside our organisation. But we know that we're not the most diverse organisation because we actively discriminate against some people coming into the Defence Force. There's a fitness requirement and a psychological requirement to come in and serve. And that's limiting in some respect to what we do, but it's a necessary part. So in order to overcome that, we need to look broadly about how we can include elements of people with a second language, for example, Language is hugely important in this diverse world we're living in, and particularly in our region in the Southeast Asia, Southwest Pacific area, where our focus is firmly set at the moment. So, yeah, we, we there are a number of different programs. They range um, particularly around the leadership, the mentoring piece, which is really important. Uh, there are others as well. We work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Australians and programs to prepare them to come into the organisation. So, yeah, it's, it's a great piece of work, and there's some great people working on it right across the fence. It's a really good issue that Paul's raising there, David, in, in that sense of having diversity and inclusion, how that is such a big part of being a good leader, isn't it? Absolutely. And it's the key to success, right? And Paul's rightly said, in some respect, the diversity is the recruiting part of the challenge. And our Defence Forces recruit well, but now the inclusion part. So I've recruited well, but now they're in. Do they actually have this sense of belonging within the organisation? And now this comes back to the leader. So we've now got a leader who has responsibility to make sure that everybody feels welcome. Everybody has a role to play. 
and we're all back to one team. Because if the leader is not respecting that inclusion, the challenge will be the rest of the team will probably won't respect the leader. So it's all about, as a leader, you've got a role model. You've got to lead from the front. So others are watching you. And I often say it's really hard being a leader because you're under observation 24-7. From a diversity and inclusion point of view, what are you role modeling? What are you talking about? How do you actually bring about inclusion within the organization? And that's the challenge that all good leaders have, not just in defense, but in all industries. How diverse and inclusive are you? Paul, what I'd like, I suppose, to finish on is what you do and what your teams do, you know, leading big groups of people over land, over sea, and it's, you know, it life or death issues very much. What are some things, though, that we could think about bringing into our everyday life that leaders who are listening could think, actually, that's something that I could do or that's something I could incorporate? Is there one or two points that you would like to, to finish on and get across? The first thing I would say is that leadership is not a single point journey. You should be constantly developing your leadership throughout your entire career. Occasionally, we bump into leaders who come to our program and say, yeah, I really don't need this. I've, I've achieved all I need to do. We're like, well, really? That's interesting. Tell me a bit about that. And you know, throughout coaching programs, they reveal that, in fact, they are in on, on a journey itself. So continual development, continual reflection on your self-awareness and your own uh, journey, your stage of your career and reflecting against those that are working around you is hugely important. Don't think of it as being, I've ticked the leadership box, that's it, moved on. It has got to be a journey that really continues, indeed, not just through a career, but through your life. The other one I was, thing I should add is that leadership development is not a solo journey. Certainly, your work is critical to that in your own reflection, but there is so much support out there and you should seek support at different points in your career. So in Navy, we use mentoring, which is you know, direct advice around how to get through certain circumstances and jobs. And we also have a dedicated coaching program. The Navy Leadership Coaching Program is set up with um, all qualified coaches that support that learning journey. They normally follow on from a, a leadership workshop or a 360-degree report in their most basic level work towards short-term goals, which is fine. And sometimes, though, and increasingly for the more senior people, around the notion of influence and how I can then balance everything from work life to that education that I'm trying to achieve, keeping those big picture changes in career up in the air, how might I get there? And just having someone to bounce ideas off and a coach can actually reflect back elements or provide uh, provoking questions, thought-provoking questions around why you're thinking in certain ways and how might you think differently and actually engage other elements of support in your life to achieve goals that might just be hidden a little bit. You might have things in the background. Well, maybe you want to elevate some part of it. So support is really important and it can come from many forms. I would also say that peer support is really important. So often leaders, they can managers and they, it's the, you know, the cold, lonely responsibility of being a leader in command. And there's, a, there's an element of truth to some part of that. But in truth, you're never really truly alone. There is always a peer network somewhere. And so one of the things I've learned in my career is to seek those peer networks and a simple conversation can change a lot of thinking. And it's colloquial, it might be casual, and it cert could certainly just say, you know, oh, I've got this problem, I don't know, what do you think? Well, approach. And 
And I'd say I might come back that just prompts a little change in thought or a little reflection, a little experience, and you might think, oh, man, the light bulbs just came on. How awesome. I might give that a crack. So peer networks are really important. The other aspect is have conversations, talk about the stuff. You've never the first person to have a leadership challenge in a role. There's always someone who's been in a similar experience. And particularly for your um, superiors in the organization, they've probably been in a similar boat before. Having the conversations can be really helpful in elevating your leadership experience and progressing your own leadership journey. I love that, the power of conversation. I mean, that's what we're doing here today. But I, I think that is such a way to connect one another and to get a sense of, well, what can I do differently? David, have you got some final observations? Incredible. What a great conversation we've just had. You know, we talk about leadership and the link to culture and what we've just talked about. And we've talked about, you know, the importance of self-awareness as a leader. We've then talked about communication and how you build communication over time. And then Paul's left some great things like, you're not alone. As a leader, it is lonely at times, but you're never alone. So how are you building that team around you? How are others supporting you? And I think one of the most important things we've touched on today is we can't assume and we can't rest. Paul talked about the continuous learning journey and you can't take it for granted. You know, it takes work to be a good leader and it takes work to create a great culture. And it's hard at times. But I think the parting comment I would say is the best thing you can do is be you. Make sure you've been clear, you've been transparent, and you know what you value, and you're actually taking others with you. That would be my insight. You're never really alone, as Paul said. I'd like to thank Paul for coming along today, um, flying up out of Canberra this morning. It was a freezing. Was that the right word, Jess? Oh, yes. As a previous Canberra weather girl in my early media career, I used to always say, it's freezing. (laughs) So uh, thank you. Thank you, Paul. Um, uh, It's been inspiring as it always is. So thank you very much for coming along. Yes, Paul, thank you so much. Captain Paul Mogga, your insights, your observations, your experiences, thank you for sharing them with us. You've taught me so much, as I know people listening have learnt from your experiences. Thank you. Well, there you have it, straight from the mouth of some of the most successful business leaders in Australia. Culture and leadership really are the driving force behind organisations that thrive even in some of the most challenging circumstances. Thank you all for listening to Keeping Good Company. Throughout this series, we've explored how to help individuals reach their full potential, how innovative teams are built and the benefits of developing effective leaders. We hope the insights shared in this podcast have given you the tools to start building not only good, but great workplace culture in your organisation today. This podcast is a listener production brought to you in partnership with Human Synergistics, hosted by me, Jess Rowe, Produced by Kelsey Menzies. Executive producer is Todd Stevens with audio production by Kelly Falston. Listener.